Hey everybody and welcome into episode 25 of the Landscape Photography Show. Not only am I surprised that we're already at 25 episodes, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the first 25 full of amazing content from some of the best landscape photographers that there are. But also today is a very special episode because I have someone on the podcast that I've been trying to get on for a long time long time, years even, that I've sent him DMs on Instagram. His name is Chris Burkhard. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he's on the show today. I wanted to ask Chris a lot of questions about landscape photography, not only the artistic side, but also kind of like how he experiences landscapes through the assignments that he goes on and also the way he views sharing locations and his views on what we should be doing as landscape photographers also. The Landscape Photography Show is a podcast where you can listen to your favorite photographers talk about their journey in photography. It's a place where you can be inspired and also learn how to take better photos. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey, what's up guys and welcome into this podcast. I'm really excited to record this podcast because we have a guest on uh, that I've been interested to get on for quite some time. We have Chris Burkhard on the podcast. Chris is a photographer, explorer, creative director, speaker, author, record holder, dad, husband. Chris, am I forgetting anything on this long yeah, list? That's it. That's a long list. I, uh, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to live up to all that hype, but I can definitely say that, um, as a, as a dad and husband, those are, those are the two most important roles and everything else just kind of falls into line after that. So for those who don't know you, maybe you've been living under a rock for the last 10 years or so, how did you yeah. get started? That's a great question. Um, you know, I, I got started in photography like many, I would say it's, it's not like a, you know, some, you know, in, incredible journey or story. I just was in high school trying to find myself and I, um, I did a lot of automotive work with cars that vehicles were like my passion. That was everything. And ultimately I ended up, uh, picking up a camera mainly as a way to like sort of fit in with my friends that were going up the coast and surfing. And that's what, that's what I was spending all my spare time doing. Like I, I grew up by the beach. Um, my mom, you know, and me were always at the ocean. And, and that's really like, I think was many ways my first canvas artistically, but also like emotionally, like it was always a safe place. And, uh, it, you know, my late high school years, like every spare second, it was like, early go, you know, 6am Dawn Patrol to go surf before high school and then late in the evening, drive up the coast and, and whatnot. And I just, I loved surfing with my friends, but a part of me felt like these were such rad moments that I wanted a place within that. And my place felt kind of natural being a documentarian. So that's honestly how I got my start. I picked up a camera, my girlfriend at the time, now wife, who I met in high school, her mom's old Nikon hippie strap camera. And uh, that was the, the first camera. I would buy used film from CVS Pharmacy or Rite Aid. I would just run through rolls and rolls of expired film and then go get it processed for like, you know, whatever, 35, 60 cents a roll and then, you know, get digital scans. And that was like, that was the early days. That was really it. You know, that was the impetus of my career, I guess you'd say. That's awesome. You mentioned like the Nikon film camera. It's funny. I ha I actually have that camera tattooed on my arm. Oh, nice. That's <laughs> So when I read through 
everything I read through in the intro to this, all of your titles, looking back and, and even listening or reading those, what does it mean to you to hear all that? Um, I mean, to be honest, I feel like I think any normal person should a bit of imposter syndrome. Like I don't feel like I fit in with the, you know, with anyone else who holds any kind of cycling record. I don't feel like I fit in there. Uh, anybody else who is an award-winning photographer, I don't feel like I fit in there. Anybody who is a commercial director or film director, I don't feel like I fit in there because I feel like in many ways, everything I've done has kind of been by like the skin of my teeth and I've like barely pulled it off. And it's honestly been on the shoulders of so many other people helping me get there that I just, I've never really felt like, oh man, these are my accomplishments. You know, I think the only title that I really cling to and that, that scares the hell out of me because I know it's, it's an everyday thing is being a dad and being a husband, right? Because that's the one that like that, that weight of the responsibility is very real and it stares you in the face every day. And um, I guess in many ways, I, I wish I could bundle all of that stuff up into saying like, uh, Chris is a storyteller who cares deeply about the human condition and wants to share those stories and emotions and what drives us to be the best versions of ourselves. And nature is where he's found, um, where he's found that to be. And so I guess if I could summarize it all, that's really what I strive to do. Like that's the reason I, I, I work in so many different, um, modalities is that I, because I care about telling stories in all those different ways. And I think that every creative person should do that. They should strive to tell stories in all those various ways. Is anything missing from that list that yeah. you have yet to do? <laughs> oh, come on. Um, I hope not. No, I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> what, uh, I don't know. I, I'm nowadays, oftentimes I speak quite a bit. Um, that's, that's a big part of my, my career and my job is, um, I probably do like more speaking assignments or, or speaking gigs, you could say, um, than I do necessarily commercial, like photography assignments. Um, now it's just something that I get requested to do because of the Ted talk I gave and amongst other presentations and talks I've done. So it's a, it's a new and challenging part of my, my life and career, but it's something that's been incredibly fulfilling and forced me to like be very, um, I guess, be very tested and be very um, challenged in the in the way that like this is outside of my comfort zone and I, I love it. It's also just scares the hell out of me. So that's important. How, how do you fight that imposter syndrome that you talked about? Um, you know, there's a lot of different ways to think about it. You know, I, my, I have a good friend, Keith Lozinski. He's a photographer and really mm -hmm. talented dude. And he, he said something once that really struck me. He's like, in the beginning, we're all imposters. Like we all are. Like you don't have a style of work. Like you don't you don't pick up a camera and you're like, oh, this is my style. I'm gonna be like, you imitate, you duplicate, you replicate, whatever. You do everything everybody else is doing, and you 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 shoot and you suck and you suck and you suck and you succeed and then you fail and you suck, and eventually you figure out your own genre, your own style, or your own way of work. And that's that's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to like. I guess in many ways, um, accept that and accept that that is a part of life and a part of your career. And, and, um, I think, I think that the way that I've been able to, to get over that is that everybody at some point has been in that, those, that position, everybody at some point has felt that. And, um, 
I think that nowadays, yeah, it's a little bit challenging because I feel sometimes like when you do too much, you kind of end up doing everything a bit half-assed and, um, and that's just a reality. And so I, I've tried to kind of realize, okay, if I'm doing this one thing, I'm going to dedicate everything to it. It's why last year when I was training for that bike ride, like I turned down a lot of work and I turned down a lot of other things that, you know, even family time to train for that ride because it was important to me and I wasn't going to go out there and put my body through absolute hell in my mind um, if I wasn't prepared. And it's the same thing for a job. Like I'm like this year I shot a film. Um, I'm dedicating everything I have to it, every all my time, energy, um, all my focus to make sure it's the best it can be because I, you can't be everything at once, you know? So that's a way in which I feel like I, I, it's not necessarily like you're, you're scrubbing away that imposter syndrome, but at least you're feeling dignified and justified in the fact that when you did that thing, when you, when you worked on that new project or whatever it is, you gave it everything you had and there was nothing left on the table. And I think a real imposter wouldn't do that. Is it something you see though in a lot of people, I'm sure you get contacted all the time, people who want to take better photos really struggle with that syndrome? Well, I, th I think the issue that I see more so is that people who want to take photographs, they come to you and this is just, this is the world according to Chris. I mean, this whole podcast really is. So take it all. all <laughs> sure. You might just be like, oh, well that he, he doesn't know what he's talking about. That's fine. But I, I take giving advice very seriously, like really, um, it's a really important thing to me because I've been in the situation where I've asked for advice. I've been in that young, youthful state where I'm so vulnerable and I'm asking my mentors and they've given me nothing. And that like shook me to my core, right? So when I give advice, I mean it and I try to give the best advice I can. And um, one thing I would say is that oftentimes I get asked these questions where people want directions to a destination that they haven't figured out. And if you know what I mean, the one thing I always say is like, I cannot give you directions to a destination that, you, that doesn't exist, a place that you don't know where you want to go. And yeah, I can give you general advice, but that's the same general advice you can get online. If you want specific instructions like, hey, what do you think of my photos? Like, I don't know what I think of your photos because I don't know what you want to do. If you want to be a commercial portrait photographer, your photographs suck. But if you want to be uh, an action sports or landscape photographer, your photographs are amazing. You're incredible. Like... Do you know what I mean? Like you, it's just so generalized. And I think that when people ask for advice, like, oh, how do you, how do you get to, you know, how do you get to doing this? How do you get, it's like, I need more clear instruction as to where you want to end up. And if I know where you want to end up, I can help you get there. And I think that that's one of the general questions that really, it's, it's a little painful because I want to help. And I, I understand that there is the, um, I understand that there is like, a bit of uncertainty and unclarity as to where they want to end up. And that's a part of it. But I just feel like, man, like, you know, if you have the chance to ask somebody an important question, just think through it a little bit, you know, take the time, think through it, give, give, give this opportunity that you have like all of your attention, not just like haphazardly asking for advice when you maybe don't, when you maybe could have found that answer online. Yeah. Well, let's go there for a second. I mean, you've mentioned photo style. You just mentioned several other like subcategories that's in photography for you and your photos and your work, your creative style. Is it fair to subcategorize you into landscapes, travel, adventure, or anything like that? Uh, sure. I mean, whatever people want. I, I, that's the thing is that it's all, it's all a 
I think it's it's subjective to what the the viewer sees or the client sees or something like that. I mean, um, one of the pieces of, of wisdom, I guess you could say, and I only say wisdom because I I failed at this myself, is that it's important to never try to convince yourself or other people that you can do everything well. It's it's simply not needed and it's simply a waste of time. You you're never hired because of that. So um, you don't need to be the best. You don't you don't need to put a, together a portfolio and put it in front of an editor and say, oh, I can shoot landscapes and portraits and, and babies and product and all this stuff. Like that's that's pointless. So I think what I've realized is that the more you can specialize in your career, the greater success you're going to have getting hired, the greater success you're going to have being successful at, at just what you're doing in general. Like it's going to it's going to benefit you so much. And I've, 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 you know, verified this with many editors of magazines I've worked with and whatnot. And it's the same thing they search for. Paul Nicklin is a good friend of mine and, you know, he is the best at shooting under Antarctic ice. It's why he's hired to do so. He can probably shoot beautiful Afghan portraiture, but it's not what he's brought to the table to do, you know? So I think, um, I think understanding your niche and realizing that if you hone that niche, and then you realize that afterwards, yes, you can branch out into other things and work on other things. That's, that's super healthy and super helpful. But it's important to specialize, I think, at some point and in some way. That's such a small niche, though, that you mentioned, like underwater ice or one specific location. Like, does it really have to be that small? Um, well, here's the thing you usually only enjoy so many things, right? Mm. He enjoys shooting in Arctic landscapes. So saying underwater ice, I would say that there is maybe four or five people in the world that can do, that can really do that in, a, in an amazing way. Now, does that niche provide him more opportunities to shoot other things? Yes, because that's a part of a story. You still need all the other stuff, the landscapes, the this, the that. And so the whole point here is getting hired for the job, right? It's, it's, it's putting your resume on the table and realizing that you offer something that the other person does not, right? Or you, you are the best at this one thing. And although the assignment might require you to, to fulfill a couple other objectives, like it's, it's that one thing that's usually going to get your foot in the door. For me, when I worked at the surf, Surfer Magazine for eight years and then Surfline and Transworld before that... I mean, I was up against multiple other staff photographers. Some of the guys would follow the world tour and shoot the surfers there. Some of the guys would travel with different brands. For me, it was all about big, large-scale expeditions, usually to cold climates. So I would really hone my teeth and cut my teeth on specializing there, planning, executing, and coming back with images from that place. Now, that's a fairly broad category because I'm still having to shoot all the things that a trip requires for an article. But... Again, within that world, it was a niche in and of itself. So in a magazine like Nat Geo, you have to become more and more specialized. That's kind of how it works. You know, Paul, Paul Steinmetz, I believe is his name, um, you know, aerial photographer. He, he carries a, a, a winged paraglider, um, totally blanking on the name. And he shot all those incredible articles over Namibia and over the desert and over everything else. I mean, it's because of his, his access as a pilot that provided him those opportunities. When you go on assignment, what's your creative mindset when, when you step off the plane? Mm. Um, I'm not totally sure what you mean by that. Um, you know, I don't really think that 
I think it all depends on the location and the place for sure. Um, I think it depends on um, what the assignment is and if this is a commercial assignment or an editorial assignment or something along those lines. So are you, are you able to envision that, that final shot that you want before you get off the plane? Again, exactly the same question, because if it's a commercial assignment and I'm going there for a client, it's usually been storyboarded out and I know exactly what they want. So it doesn't really leave much room for creativity. I mean, creativity equals risk and risk is not what people want when they're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on a shoot. Right. Mm. So yeah, the shot's been scripted and prescribed and it's, it's all detailed and we know exactly what we're going to do. We're going to shoot this car in this place. Totally different if you're going there for a personal thing or for something along those lines. Right. What's the connection like to the photos? If you are going hired versus a project that you're doing yourself, because a lot of landscape photographers who listen to this podcast, you know, we're always going to, you know, if we want to go to the Oregon coast, we're going to go there. We want to go to Acadia in the fall. We're going to go there, but you're kind of being sent to a lot of places. Well, yeah, exactly. And I think that, I think there's, it's just a different mentality again. Like, you know, if I was like, say if my, if the point of my work was to be like, I'm going to follow the seasons and just follow this kind of trail of the most beautiful places and, and yeah, go to Yosemite and this time of year and then um, Sequoia then and like, you know, yada, yada, yada. That would be, I would, that's my dream. <laughs> I wish I could do that. But typically if I get on a plane or if I'm traveling somewhere, I need to justify the means. So to me, all of those, all of those trips that you were just describing, that's kind of spec work, right? It's work that you're doing on speculation that you might sell a print or, or sell a photo to somebody or something like that. Most of what I'm doing is uh, commercially driven. So I'm going somewhere to shoot for a client um, or I'm going somewhere to shoot for a magazine. So commercial or editorial is usually the driving force. And yes, on, on sort of the back of some of those projects, like if I'm going up to Canada to shoot something for whomever, I might stay a couple of days and shoot something personal, but um, I don't want this to come across in any way the wrong way, but like I have to justify spending time away from my office and my employees and my family to do so. And that's a really hard thing for me to do. You know, so I think that I don't have as much freedom as people think. <laughs> you know, I don't have the freedom to like, Oh, I'm just going to cruise wherever. Like I have a list of places I would dream of going, but usually it's my job to sell a client on the idea of going there. Do they come to you though? Or do you, like you just said, sell them on the idea. Do you yeah, have to sell them, them after they them, approach you? All of them come to me. Yeah. Yeah. What's that like? Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure what you mean, but uh, I, I mean, an email comes in. It usually goes to my office manager, Mike and uh, who you mentioned before. And then he filters that to either himself, if it's a smaller inquiry where somebody just wants to license an image, like say a Microsoft wants to license a photo I shot in Yosemite 10 years ago or <clears throat> something like that. And then it would be sent to my licensing agent, Kim, or it would go and be sent to my agent, Jonathan, if it's a fresh assignment that requires a budget to be written up and a production estimate and all those details. So it's usually getting filtered one of two ways. I mean, my time my personal time, I protect for my family. And because if I was answering every single inquiry and every question, like that's all I would ever do. You know, I would be drowned in an endless um, amount of emails with people asking me, you know, questions about this and that. So it, 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 it's required me to, to 
find the, the support of a team to help me with that stuff as well. Um, but usually it gets filtered in one of two ways. And then, and we kind of evaluate, okay, is this worthwhile? Is, is the time, is it, is the juice worth the squeeze? Right. And that's a big, hard thing. And, and I'll just say this one uh, thought that I, I spoke about a little bit on Chase Jarvis's podcast is that, you know, it took me a lot of years to learn how to say no, because I grew up in a really blue collar home. My dad is a landscaper still is. And every job that would ever come, it would be like, we would say yes to. And yeah. the idea, the concept of saying no is just so foreign. So the reality is like when jobs come, my instinct is to be like, yes, let's do it. Yes, let's do it at the, at the, um, at the sort of demise of my time with my family and my health and everything else. And so I've, I've had to learn how to like choose the good ones and say no on some that are pretty good still um, and pass them on to somebody else. Hey guys, I just want to pause real quick to talk about the sponsor for today's podcast, and that's visualwilderness.com. Visual Wilderness is a place that you can go to online to find tons of resources, both blog posts, articles, and post-processing tutorials, as well as in-field tutorials that are going to help you become a better landscape photographer. I'm a contributor to that site, and right now, for a limited time, you can get my courses on visualwilderness.com for 33% off if you use the code David33 during checkout. And you can use those to help you improve your post-processing from when you do get back into your computer after you've been out in the field and edit better photos. And if you wanna see the links on discount codes and also the write-up to this episode, head over to davidjohnstonart.com slash podcast slash card. Back to the show. I want to ask you about composition because I was going through your portfolios right before we jumped on and, and kind of studying cool. your images. When you go to these places, whether you are on assignment or you are doing um, like a film or something, how, how do you not overthink a photo when you are in these expansive landscapes? Hmm. Hmm. That's a good one. Um, David, I think, I think one thought is that, you know, we have the ability to like, look at what a lot of other people have shot nowadays. Mm -hmm. And so studying that work is really helpful. Um, understanding what's been done. And I, and, and I, I'm a big researcher. Like I research the crap out of places that I go. And I, especially because a lot of the places, well, well, let me, let me back up a second. First things first, if you're going somewhere that nobody's been, you have absolute free will to do whatever you want because there's zero comparison. Mm -hmm. If you're going to the Kirills or the Aleutians or somewhere like that, there's nothing to compare your work to. So shoot whatever you want. It doesn't even make a difference because the easiest way to create good images is to be somewhere that nobody else has been, right? Like it's, it's not the first person that shot a photograph at Glacier Point blew everyone's mind. Was it the best composition? Probably not, you know? So I think there's something different. Like when I'm going somewhere new, I try to just be as open as I can. Like whatever I feel inspired by, I don't want to be overwhelmed by like, what does it look like? And what does it look like online? And yada, yada, yada. And I just kind of shoot at will. Um, I think uh, when it comes to places I've been before or, or places that have been heavily traveled, I definitely do my research and I try to understand what I'm up against, what people have shot there so I can shoot it a little different or I can try to bring something new to the table. And you know what? Sometimes you just simply can't shoot it differently. 
And in that case, I feel like I lean more heavily on what I have to say about a place. Um, but, but again, on another sort of side road, this also depends on what the assignment's for. Like if I'm going somewhere for a personal trip or if I'm going somewhere for a client or something like that, because sometimes the creativity is sort of sucked away from it when you're going there and it's all already like they, they know what they want and you might be recreating one of your own images or you might be recreating something else that they saw from somebody else in a deck that you saw, you know, like here's our creative brief, here's all the photos we like. And it's a mixture of a bunch of other people's images. And you're like, okay, well, I'm going to go and shoot that. It's a, you know, obviously my dream and my favorite type of photography is, is when I'm on a trip, that's a personal trip or it's an environmental project and I'm going somewhere new because you're able to bring the world a perspective that they haven't seen. And that's so refreshing because you're not overthinking it and you're not being overwhelmed. And, um, I think that there's something important to be said for like doing your research, yes, but not letting that research overwhelm your experience to where all you're doing is searching for an image, you know? And I think that for me, um, you know, there are a lot of times when I just, I just, it doesn't come to life. It doesn't come, it doesn't happen. I don't, I don't bring anything great to the table, right? So um, I try not to like get too down on myself or overwhelmed by that. How important is like subject placement for you and your style? Hmm. I, I would say it's a funny concept because I think that this is a very, very big and obviously interesting part of what makes landscape photography, landscape photography today right? is like, Oh my gosh, subjects. And it's, it's really funny, but um, I, I grew up shooting surfing, right? That was, what I was photographing. Um, so I'm photographing surfers, which are these incredible athletes in these beautiful natural landscapes, right? And for me, my style of work, if, you, if you're familiar with it and or if you're familiar with, I think, the, the early impetus of my career, a big portion of that was pulling back on the surfers and revealing the landscape. So in essence, that's completely different than adding a random subject into a photograph simply because it's an interesting stylistic thing or simply because it's something that is a trend. To me, it was always about revealing the landscape. So, so kind of the opposite, right? And I think that that sort of mindset, that style has always been my style. That's always been the thing I've wanted to do is like I want to show with any subject where they are, give a context of place, a context of feeling. So if I'm shooting somebody hiking through the Sierras or if I'm shooting something like that, I'm, I'm always kind of looking for a way to um, add landscape to my subject, right? It, it's kind of like looking at it the other way around. And I would say that to me, if somebody is in that landscape, they have to be doing something, doing something. Some, I mean, I, ideally not not just taking in the view but like that's why I've always just my my train of thought has always been shooting for like backpacker or outside or surfer or whatever where like you're shooting somebody in action right mm -hmm. and yeah there's some great moments where you can have a solemn image of somebody sort of taking in the experience but um it's really important to me that like the um I guess you're you're shooting and it looks legitimate and everything kind of matches up and that's a that's a real authentic image that you're, you're, you're hoping and honing to create, you know? Yeah. One of the things that, that I found just looking at your images on your landscape portfolio is subject placement in negative spaces. And that, that 
was one thing that really like clicked for me when I started looking at them and, and kind of putting together patterns when I was looking at your photos? Yeah, absolutely. I would say, I would say for sure that, you know, any amount of contrast you can add to the image, you know, I know we're talking about composition here, but contrast is everything. And I, and I don't, I don't mean contrast by sliding a bar in Lightroom. I mean, contrast right. <laughs> by, by like, allowing an image a photograph to to have natural contrast you, you create that by shooting in the evening you can create that by shooting in the morning you can create that by basically having a subject that is positioned in a place where there is negative space and or there is soft light or there's dark light or something along those lines so you're you're trying to offset them from the background so they they stand out right i don't think there's anything worse than shooting a photograph of someone or something where they're hidden in the frame and the viewer can't see it. Like that's mm -hmm. just frustrating for everybody. So, um, I mean, sometimes I think we, we sometimes myself included, we, we take that to an overkill, like the person's in such a contrasting place that they seem to be the focus. Um, I think that the key to a beautiful nature image, um, and a beautiful photograph that celebrates landscape is where there's a harmonious balance between subject and landscape. Do you ever go through creative blocks? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I do for sure. I would say that, uh, I would say that oftentimes, um, I, I always go through creative blocks like every, every month or so or every couple months. And, um, you know, it's a big part of why, um, being outside and just being in nature without a camera is super helpful. And I, and I guess in many ways it, it, it doesn't frustrate me, but it makes me feel sad slightly that, I see a lot of people who like the only way they identify, like once they become a photographer, it's like the only way they identify with nature is by being outside with their camera. And that's excellent. Super awesome. I just, I guess I feel in many ways, like when I go out on assignment or I go out to shoot somewhere, I need like a well, a deep well that's filled to the brim of inspiration. And I gather that by usually being at home, being with my family, riding my bike, doing yoga. All of those activities don't include my camera. And although I'll take my phone or I'll document it in some way, um, I'm not out there like just, you know, trying to focus on shooting the best image I can. I'm out there focusing on having the best experience I can. And I think that's a huge part of it. Now, there's a big movement right now, especially among a lot of the landscape photographers that I shoot with about sharing too much information on social media of places and the impact that humans can have on those places. Um, how do you really weigh sharing a location uh, if it's fragile and you know the ecosystem can't really handle that much foot traffic versus posting something on social media to educate the public? That's a great question. I, I would love to first hear your thoughts on that. I would love to get your input on what you think. Yeah. That. So one, one of my strategies that I've kind of come up with and I can, I live in Tennessee. So if I go over to East Tennessee and go over to the Smokies region, um, I know of this one waterfall that's, that's a secret waterfall. It's not on any trail map. Um, it's like a one car pull off spark parking spot yeah. that you can get to. And you kind of have to bushwhack your way back into it. But once back there, you realize that there's some very fragile ecosystems that are there, not to mention some endangered species that live in the river itself. Yeah. So when I do share a location like that, I'll generalize it. 
um, say yeah. Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And then usually I'll share like an interesting fact about that place, why it's fragile, uh, and, and probably post something along those lines if I'm just trying to come up with something on the spot. That's a great question. I, you know, it's such a challenge because I've seen this argument. I've seen both sides of this argument. And, mm-hmm. and I'll just give you my personal take on it is that if somewhere is truly, really sensitive and it, it, and it can't benefit from, it can't benefit from more people because some places can, and I'll, I'll address that in a second. Um, then I, I, de- I definitely keep it as absolutely uh, generic as possible. Right. But I feel oftentimes like, you know, and, and my, my rule of thumb is like, if it's obvious, you know, you're at Glacier Point, Yosemite, you're at somewhere in the Glacier National Park, you're, you know, in Yellowstone, like there's no need to be like, act like sure. a location. There's a trail, <laughs> there's a parking lot right here, dude. Like that's a totally different thing. And I, sometimes I laugh and people are like, oh, great. You're making, you know, it's just like, give me a break. Like this. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if it's obvious and obviously like if it's a trail, if it's a, it's a well-traveled trail in Yosemite or somewhere else, like, hell yeah, I want people to get out there. I want people to get out there. I want people to experience that because the reality is you have to get a permit and there's only so many permits given and they're already full. I just put in for my permits for Yosemite six months from now. And guess what? The one I wanted isn't even available. What that means is that there's a limited amount of people on the trail. So no amount of promoting it's going to allow more people to go experience it, Right. The other thought of that is that nature is a gateway drug. And for all the people that complain about somebody driving to the Grand Canyon, pulling out their selfie stick and standing on the edge and then taking a photo and driving home and that's it, who cares? Like, would you rather see them at home playing video games? Like, I don't get it. Like, nature is a gateway drug. And the reality is if they had a good experience, then they might go again. And the next time they might hike a few miles down. They might even see the Colorado. They might feel the real magic of the place. And that will hopefully inspire them to care about those places, vote to protect those places. You see examples of places like Bears Ears National Monument where it's a funny thing because Bears Ears was in many ways a very um, not secretive but not overly publicized and not overly well-known national monument. And part of the reasons why I think and I think many people have expressed that it became a rescinded monument is because it didn't have the visitation. It didn't have the visitation, which means they couldn't put the money into the visitor center and into um, into rangers, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a funny thing because there was this huge movement to promote the preservation of Bears Ears. And a lot of people are like, where's Bears Ears? I've never even been there. I don't even know where it is. Nobody knew. And I think the reality is people were trying their best to keep it a secret, rightly so. I mean, it has a lot of fragile and sacred spaces, but it's a cautionary tale is all I'm saying. And like, you look at what happened there and now it's open to way, way, way more devastating things. I think that a couple of potentially sacred sites being, being, I mean, this is going to sound terrible. Being damaged is way, way less um, of a travesty than having the whole place open to oil drilling or having it bought and sold and this, you know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. I see both sides of the story and I, and it's complicated and I hate thinking about it. But I also feel like to each their own, every person, when they share a location, I just always, my rule of thumb is like, ask yourself why you're doing it. And if it makes sense and you can justify it, then wonderful. I, I, I mean, I asked that question just because I see a lot of your work towards Iceland and um, a lot of the work with their government that you've done. What, what are some of the successes that you've seen 
through your approach in Iceland? Oh man, that's a great question. I'm actually hoping to go there next week and do a, uh, do a, um, a little like book signing there and a, another presentation on behalf of the government and to help advocate for the national park. And I think one of the things that I've seen there that's been awesome is just the fact that basically because of tourism, it's allowed them to not have to invest into more extractive industries like uh, aluminum smelters and, um, and dams and other things like that. Like what, a, what an incredible gift. Like that's the point of the book I made at Glacier's End. It's a, it's, an, it's a book that advocates for the protection of its river systems. It's a book that advocates for a national park. And right now they're fighting this massive fight to create a national park. And I think that in many ways that is kind of been my quest to, to really lend a voice to that and to spend seven years photographing these, these fragile rivers and in the hopes that, um, in the hopes that I can give a voice to a voiceless place because many people, even many who live there have never seen them from this perspective and they've never seen that beauty and they don't really know what's at risk. And so this might, it's funny because I say this all the time, like there are battles to fight right in my backyard, but in the U S things can move rather glacially. And I don't mean that's not a pun, but ultimately (laughs) in Iceland, you can see change occur and you can feel like you're a part of that change. And that's really valuable to me. All right. I threw out this option on Instagram. I've never done this before. So probably not smart to start this on this podcast. Um, okay. I threw it out there and asked people if they wanted any questions towards you. I got a few that I thought uh, were interesting. So we'll kind of go rapid fire with these. The first one, and it is kind of a loaded question. What's your post-processing philosophy? Oh man, that's a, that's a great question. Um, Impossible to answer rapid fire. Um, I do. Right. <laughs> I, I do. And I spend hours of a workshop doing that. Um, I spend. I have workshops online that break that down. So that would be the best place. But the ultimate thing is like I, I am colorblind. Um, I first and foremost, um, when I'm when I'm shooting an image and I'm editing an image, I'm trying to bring the image back to what I saw, and I do so by trying to create as much natural contrast as possible. And what I mean by that is I don't ever touch the contrast bar in Lightroom. And I I really avoid at all costs, always a touching saturation. I also think that if you are prone to using those tools, set limits. If you never set a limit, you'll never know if you go over the limit ever, right? So for me, it's all about taking the image, adding cool tones and warm tones, because that's really all an image is divided up in. It's, It's all about cool and warm. And the more you study that, especially if you study three-dimensional art, you'll understand just in general um, that, that this is what gives an image contrast, right? I also like to look into the tone curve and adjust the contrast that way because it's more accurate and it's more detailed and you can work with the individual lights and the individual darks and the individual blacks, et cetera, et cetera. So that is just a way more accurate way. So my philosophy is to first, first adjust there. Um, adjust the temperature rating, select certain areas of the image and adjust the temperature rating and at all costs, never touch saturation if you can avoid it. And that's really what I teach in my workshops. And usually people are pretty amazed at what they can create when they do that. And really that process is, is meant to be more similar to dodging and burning, right? Selecting certain areas, giving it a different tonal quality in terms of, in terms of um, cool or warm, right? And, and working like that. All right. What weather do you like most? 
Um, I would say the weather I like most is like low, uh, potentially like, oh man, that's so hard. Uh, I love like high clouds, like high puffy separated clouds where light's kind of coming through and it's dappled, right? And I love when like maybe there's a couple rain squalls and it's moving through the landscape and then that's clearing up and there's some rainbows. Like those are days that you can definitely get and they're so amazing. Like those are truly some of like the, that's some of like the sickest weather you could ever, ever have in my opinion. Um, so I, I really seek out those opportunities, you know, like, and when the weather's bad, I'm just always like, well, this is the time to shoot. Like this is when it's the best time to go and, and photograph something really. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say storms for me are definitely when I head out. Yeah. And, and I'm sure many times you don't score, right? Like it, it sucks. Right. And that Oh happens. yeah, absolutely. So how do you handle communication back home from the field? Um, it depends on who you're talking about. Are you talking about with my office, talking about with my wife, you talking about with my family? Kid? Yeah. So that's a great question. And it's something that I, uh, I definitely could spend a whole podcast talking about. Um, but basically this is a really important thing. We, we are not meant to text message. It's just one of the things that humans were never really designed to do, um, like effectively. Therefore I really try to call my wife when I need to talk to her. And even like, you know, even if it's a three minute call, I'd rather call my wife and text her all day long because you, you need the tone of the voice. You need the tonality. You need to understand what you're saying, what you're talking about. And a simple, I'm all right, can mean a million different things. If you're doing so with like, with a, you know, via text or via, via phone call. Right. And so I think that's a big important thing. A second thing is that I've noticed with kids, especially is that I go to great lengths to make sure I can contact my kids, whether through videos or text if I have to, or phone calls. But the big thing is like sending back and forth videos and, and photos. Um, and it's, it's honestly an important and critical thing that I've realized is if you come back from a trip and your kids are like, dad, where were you? You've already, you've already failed. Like you need to be thinking of them while you're there and thinking of them in every moment. And if you're doing that and you're like, Hey, my kid loves lizards. I'm going to every lizard I lizard I see, I'm going to like say, send a picture to him and I'm going to send a, a video to him and I'm going to send something that makes him feel like he was there, like, like it's special and that, he, that I'm constantly, he's constantly on my mind. And that's really the way I think in which you, you create a bond. Um, obviously people's always questions like, when do you bring your family on trips? And I'm like, I don't because they don't want to be in the Arctic in a van with a bunch of dudes for 10 days. I think <laughs> like that. So yes, I try to bring them on trips when on the backside of trips or when I'm home, we, we do our own trips and stuff. That's good advice. I'm actually going to be a new dad in August. So taking that one to heart for sure. Yeah. Um, this one was just so weird. I had to throw it in there. What's your favorite board game? Man, I have a, Oh, uh, acquire. What is it? Acquire. I've never acquire. heard of that. Yeah. It's sick. It's so sick. Acquire, dude. You got to play it. It's like like Monopoly for grownups. Okay. Okay. I gotcha. Well, he's Chris Burkhard. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, Great photographer, great person. Uh, Just thank you so much for all you do and and your time on the podcast today. It means a lot, David. I really appreciate you having me and and love to join again and talk about more stuff with, uh, with you and the audience. So thanks again.